When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by the renowned historian Andrew Roberts and our regular and friend Andrew Adonis to talk about the making of the modern monarchy and King George III. With our ageing Queen stepping back from such crucial public duties as the Glasgow Climate Summit on medical grounds, the institution and its future is very much on the nation's mind at the moment. And we'll get to that in what could be a lively discussion between a royalist historian, a Labour lord and a Republican editor. Gosh, that almost sounds like one of the 12 days of Christmas. But before we get to it, uh, we need to go back to the creation of England's longest serving king and a man who is nonetheless in the estimation of Andrew Roberts's new biography, much maligned and misunderstood. So, Andrew Roberts, a warm welcome. And before we get to the reality, let's just remind our listeners of the myths. Essentially, in England, George is the mad monarch, and in America, he's the kind of tyrannical overlord across the water. Does that do in terms of summing up uh, where people think George III is before you tell us how he, how he, how he really is? Yes, in fact, you could go one stage further and say it was. Be- some people think it was because he was mad that he turned into a tyrannical um, monarch. So there's a sort of third, uh, in my view, um, misunderstanding. OK, and so um, uh, that's the uh, maligning. Um, put it right. Um, what are his overlooked achievements? I mean, tell us in summary about the job and the country that he took up as a very, very young man and then the way in the singular way in which you think uh, he helped to evolve both things. Well, thank you very much indeed, Tom, and thanks for uh, allowing me onto this splendid uh, podcast. I think that we really do think of him as a, um, as as you say, somebody who's suffering from porphyria, um, this uh, horrible disease, and somebody who. Um, according to the Declaration of Independence and also uh, Hamilton the Musical, uh, was a tyrant. And um, and neither of those things are true. You're right, when you say he came to um, uh, the throne young, he was 22 in 1760, and then he became the longest-serving king in British history. And um, uh, although he was mad for the last 10 years of his life and for occasional months 
and it explains why this person was so popular. He was enormously popular, George III, in his life. And this wasn't just sentimentality. It's because he was actually at the, the job of being king, reasonably good at it. Yes, I think so. He was also quite popular because he was a farmer. Uh, farmer George, he was nicknamed. I mean, that was intended to be a derisive nickname by intellectuals at the time. But actually, the British people, 80% of whom took their livelihoods from the land and agriculture, appreciated these uh, things that he did in terms of progressive farming, writing articles for agricultural newspapers and, and so on. He had... Uh, also, none of those kind of um, affectations of the, the trappings that the Bourbons had in Versailles, for example. He dressed as a normal English gentleman. He was frugal in his eating and drinking. He was prudent financially. He was all of those sort of good bourgeois things that, um, that actually the British people want from their monarchs, uh, even though they think that they want uh, a great uh, pomp and circumstance. And he could do the pomp and circumstance as well, if necessary, on occasion. But um, So you have this combination, really, of of, uh, of long-lasted monarchs, and that is tremendously important, of course, when it comes to popularity in uh, in Britain. One sees the present Queen, one sees Queen Victoria. If you're if you're on the throne for sixty years, you have got a much better chance of being very popular, and um, and of course he was. But but also just to add, of course, he leaves the country in a much better state than he finds it as well. I mean, England is transformed largely for the better. I mean, it's industrialized. His population has grown and all of that, which is also true of Victoria and is also true of Elizabeth II. So he's identified with a very successful period or broadly successful period, including That's victory right. over I mean, Napoleon and all that. Mm. I mean, he, of course, himself didn't know about the victory over Napoleon because he'd, um, he'd gone mad by then. But um, he had set up the sort of essentials for um, the victory of the Napoleonic Wars in that it was he who was constantly opposed to peace, he and, and Pitt the Younger. And, um, and when one looks at the statistics, they are, inc they are incredible for the Napoleonic Wars because when the Prussians fought against revolutionary and Napoleonic France for 55 months and the Russians for 58 months and the Austrians for 108 months, we um, fought against uh, them for 242 months, so as much as the whole of the rest of them put together. And that was of course, as well as the 1812 campaign, the thing that sort of wore down the Napoleonic Empire. But as well as being kind of a folksy guy, by the sounds of it, uh, on the home front, and an engaged military uh, leader of a military power in, in the continent, he was, I don't know if he had the title, but he was an emperor, both in the United States and also in places like the Caribbean, at the absolute height of the British slave trade. Do we know if he said anything about that and what does that do to his reputation? Yes, yes. This is very interesting, actually, because this is one of the things that has become um, available to, um, to researchers. In 2015, the Queen put um, 200,000 pages of the Georgian papers, the Hanoverian monarchs' um, private papers, online in a wonderful... Um, collaboration between the Royal Archives and King's College London, the Georgian Papers programme, which I do recommend anyone going online to, to look at. And in, the, in amongst those, you have George as Prince of Wales writing an essay, essentially denouncing, it, it, it's an essay, a commentary on Montesquieu's essays on the spirit of the laws. And he very much takes issue with all of the arguments in favour of 
slavery. He um, he says that it's an execration, that it's ludicrous. I actually choose one of the pages of his attack on on slavery for um, the an illustration in my book. He never owned a slave, he never bought or sold a slave, he never invested in any of the slaving companies, and of course he signed the legislation that abolished the slave trade. However, as you say, he is also king at the time, um, that this um, this terrible, evil, you know, blot on humanity is taking place. And I, th- the more I thought about it, the more it became obvious to me that although he knew it was a moral blot on uh, on humanity, he didn't do anything about it, partly because he was a constitutional monarch and there just simply wasn't a majority for, in the House of Commons or the House of Lords for the abolition of um, of slavery itself until nine years after he was dead. And also um, because they just couldn't work out a way that the economics of the West Indies, which contributed some one third of the revenue for uh, the British government, uh, could um, could work without slavery. And so he put, sorry, and he put he put realpolitik essentially before um, before um, you know what he knew to be his Christian duty essentially. As a footnote to that, don't you note in the book, Andrew, that a majority of the signatures of the American Declaration of Independence own slaves? A huge majority, 41 out of the 56, own slaves at certain time in their, in their lives. So their original criticism of him for, uh, for the slave trade was unbelievably hypocritical. In fact, it was so hypocritical that they did uh, take it out in one of the drafts, uh, draft meetings. <laughs> so, so, so we know um, from, I guess, the Declaration of independence i mean you have to remind us of what it said but he has done this he has done that he's he's been a very bad boy george the third um <laughs> well we don't know that that's the key thing uh, there are 28 charges in the declaration of which he's guilty of two of them and the other 26 are a combination of ex post facto rationalizations of things that every monarch was guilty of the last nine going back to elizabeth the first um, and uh, and various things that he didn't do. He's accused at one stage in the Declaration of Independence of of taking people abroad to be um, to be tried, and that never once happened in his reign. So to, I think what Jefferson was doing, quite understandably, it's a wartime propaganda document, was to write the first third of that extraordinary, beautiful, sublime Shakespearean prose um, about that makes everybody feel better to be human. You know about uh, about all men being created equal and so on. And then the next two thirds of it is just a lawyer's brief full of absolute rubbish frankly <laughs> so so uh i mean that is the book that you're about to start selling in the united states i mean th- this is this is a bit um sacrilegious isn't it you're not only um denouncing their founding document but you're also um or at least the last two thirds of it um but uh you're also defending their villain i mean do you really think george iii is ripe for rehabilitation now in the united states Undoubtedly, I do. Well, hang on. In the United States, yes, the, those those last few words are the are the key break. I mean, already the reviewers, um, such as Andrew, have been generous to this book and have said that it does rehabilitate uh, George, but it rehabilitates him here, where he was already, you know, King of England. Whether or not the last King of America is going to be rehabilitated will be very interesting to see how the Americans. Um, uh, deal with this book. I hope that they deal with it on their merit, on its merits, and uh, as an intellectual 
uh, exercise, um, which is, you know, backed up with as good evidence as we can and new evidence from the Queen's uh, archives. However, you know, it might be that they're in, they're, that we know them to be in a fairly febrile intellectual state at the moment after the fall of Af Afghanistan and the culture wars and Thomas Jefferson was pulled down in City Hall the other day uh, in New York. And so I don't know how this book's going to be um, uh, received. But one argument that I do make um, is that it does prove, the American Revolution does prove that America is an exceptional country because there are any number of times in history where other countries have fought for their independence against oppressive states. What they did in 1776, essentially, was to demand their independence and their, and their um, self-government from somebody who was not being an oppressive um, ruler. In fact, he was a benevolent ruler. OK, well... Um... Good luck with that, as they say, with the American, um, uh, the American audience. Um, and um, let's just um, come Thank up. You, Tom. <laughs> let's just come up to um, uh, date a little bit now, because um, uh, if if George the Third, um, you know, in cementing um, the uh, and, and popularising the sixteen eighty eight settlement, made um, the modern monarchy. Um, we've had about two hundred and fifty years since what does each of you Andrew Adonis first you know what what's what's lasted and worked well and what's looked more vulnerable in the 250 years since of the George III monarchy I thought actually in many ways George III has a better claim than I'd realized to be the creator of the the modern constitutional monarchy we recognize today with its two principal features which is constitutional government by a cabinet and parliament with the monarch taking advice and this combination of being with the people. I mean, the Queen very much, you know, she, she rarely, except on official visits, you know, while she was able to do so, left the country, constantly resident here and all that, whilst perfectly capable of doing the very great display. Those two elements, which I thought were basically Victorian, it's, it seems to me from Andrew's biography, date back to George III. And though George III, until Pitt the Younger comes along, is a very active agent in government in a constitutional way, but nonetheless is actively personally engaged. By the end of his reign, of course, by virtue partly of the fact that he goes mad, but he'd all already been moving in this direction with William Pitt the Younger when he had a prime minister in which he had confidence. To all intents and purposes, the government is conducted by 1810 by ministers and not by the monarch, which is the current position. I wonder whether Andrew uh, shares that view, that he in many ways is the creator of the modern I, constitutional monarchy. Um, I, I very much do, and I think that you're right to pinpoint Pitt the Younger, because this is the first point at which each individual minister looks to the prime minister for... Um, uh, as, as being responsible to the Prime Minister rather than to the King. Before that, each Minister actually met the King separately in audience and the Prime Minister just considered himself really to be First Lord of the Treasury, the most important person, the primus inter pares as it were, but certainly not the head of the government. And uh, and that was something that Lord North con constantly refused to accept, that, uh, that he was the head of the government, whereas William Pitt the Younger went in in 1783 under the... Um, auspices of being head of the government and then of course he was in prime he was prime minister of 17 years and in the course of that time you know he uh, he consolidated and established that but with the king's 
um, uh, authority and, and permission. Because as you say, he trusted him, he liked the things that he was doing, the sinking fund and the fighting France and all of that kind of thing. So actually, you're right, the monarchy is a much more modern concept in by the time of the king's death in 1820 than it ever was when he came to the power, came to the throne and and sort of sacked six prime ministers in the first decade in uh, on the throne. And, and it, you know, this was a, a very long reign then and a, and a time of change. And inevitably, we have to ask if we're um, in for another instalment. We've had, you know, what the tabloids call Megxit with part of the royal family kind of opting out of their duties. Um, we've got Prince Andrew engulfed in, you know, in some ways what you might think of as quite a Georgian scandal. I don't mean George III, I mean of that era. There's always scandals like that kicking around. Um, uh, everything sort of seemed manageable as long as we got the reassuring, long-standing figure of Elizabeth II in the middle of it. But then with the death of Philip and now her own um, inevitable for a 95-year-old stepping back and frailty... Um, uh, we are again having to take stock, aren't we? I mean, um, do you see this? Do, are we entering a period of change? Well, it strikes me, um, if I could just answer this one first, um, that uh, however bad a king um, Prince Charles turns out to be, he's, there's no way he's going to be as bad as George the Fourth, And uh, it was pretty much... I, I, I struggled hard to try and find any redeeming features whatsoever in, uh, in George the Fourth, and just simply uh, couldn't in the course of, of my book. Um, and I think Prince Charles has got... Uh, he, he has got lots of positive things going for him. And um, although, of course, he is uh, opinionated in the way that the Queen wasn't. Many of his opinions are ones that uh, an awful lot of his future subjects share. So I don't think, uh, and also you have to remember, of course, that George IV changed his tune when he became king and he kept the uh, Tories in and kept the Whigs out, despite the fact that he'd promised, been promising for the last sort of 30 years that he was going to do the exact opposite. So um, I think you, you can find flexibility. That's what's going to happen in my view. What do you think, um Andrew, are we, are we um, likely to suddenly realise how much has changed during a long reign again, as perhaps people did at the end of uh, George III's time? I mean, you know, when, when the Queen arrived, there was just, there wasn't the same reporting. You know, royal family members could get away with anything because there was a culture of deference that certainly isn't there anymore, although it's kind of stuck with the Queen because she's been there since 1952. Do you know what I think is the most amazing thing about the monarchy today isn't that the Queen is Queen of England, but that she's still Queen of Australia and Canada. Uh, that The fact that it is of such durability, the monarchy, in what were the dominions, because of an identity, a cultural identity with Britain, a constitutional identity with Britain, and also the, the really serious and problematic business of creating a president, and when Australia has tried to do this twice, and they simply can't agree on what the president should be, all of those arguments apply here too. And whilst, um, uh, who knows what Charles might turn out to be, he's, uh, Andrew's completely right, he can't possibly be anything on the scale of the horror show of George IV. I, I suspect he'll be a perfectly satisfactory constitutional monarch. William looks like a, a kind of uh, almost a carbon copy of his uh, grandmother in terms of the way he approaches uh, the job. Uh, very uh, circumspect in the way he conducts himself, very proper, perfectly pleasant. So I think in 100 years' time, we're probably still going to be having this conversation when we talk about, you know, the heirs of, uh, of whatever he'll be, King, uh, uh, what he will be, King William V. 
I think uh, Tom, Tom, in your in your very good um, uh, article about uh, all of this that you kindly sent me, the, um, uh, the, the 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 word that um, that gripped me was roadmap because the <laughs> it's a, about a roadmap to a republic, and my thought is. All of these roadmaps, um, you know, the roadmap between peace in Palestine and so on, you know, as soon as something you've got a roadmap to somewhere, you never get there. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> what about, um, I mean, Andrew's point there, a couple of things that could give during the next reign. One is the um, monarchy over the dominions. Um, uh, but other things like that I picked up on in, in, in looking ahead after Elizabeth II, you know, you don't need royal assent for legislation in Sweden. You don't have coronations for most of the crowned heads of Europe. Do you think we're actually going to stick with the George III version of the monarchy? Or do you think um, when, when Charles comes in, it might be time to at least modernise some of these aspects? And I'm not going to say details, because, you know, things like being the Queen of Australia and Canada are, are quite a big deal. Well, I think some of those are, are on the verge of going already, aren't they? Um, is it Barbados that's um, that's going to uh, actually not even have a referendum over it? That's just been sort of passed by uh, by the act of their parliament. But um, but she so instead she'll be queen of fourteen countries rather than fifteen. You know, it's not the it's not the end of the world as they far as they're concerned. I think, but Canada and Australia obviously would be, a ma- and New Zealand would be a major. Uh, sort of punch on the nose for the House of Windsor, um, but they would survive it and they would, you know, move on as they have so often before, in my view. One thing, Andrew, that could really do, probably not now for Elizabeth, but maybe for Charles, is being a little bit like George is the king who lost America, fairly or not. If Charles were the king who lost Scotland, that is one that people would remember um, potentially in Lady Bird history book in 400 years' time. Well, I'm not sure... Because they, I think the monarchy would stay even if Scotland became independent. The monarchy has handled the whole of the devolution business rather better, I may say, than the United Kingdom government. I mean, the Queen, who, of course, spends longer in Scotland than any of her ministers, by miles. You know, she is regarded... She was opening the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly. She has the First Minister of Scotland, who's SNP, to stay at Balmoral. I mean, they've done a very good job of, of aligning themselves with the devolved institutions, I think. And the SNP aren't about to become a um, republic anyway, are they? They, I thought that they made it quite clear in their independence referendum that they were going to make the Queen, you know, the Queen of Scotland. That would be that would be Charles would be King of Scotland, and I can't see that it would um, it would damage them. Can I, can I just introduce one element to this though, where I think uh, uh, some criticism of George III might be in order? I think he he and Victoria were both very very bad kings and queens of Ireland. Yes. And the, let's be clear, one of the things that hasn't worked in, in Britain and in this monarchy is the union between England and Ireland, which, of course, was a catastrophe. And I think it's fair to say that George III left relations with Ireland in a worse condition by the end than at the beginning. And I wonder whether Andrew's got any comments on that and what that might mean for the future. No, that is true. And, of course, the union takes place in his uh, reign. And he... Um, in, in William Pitt the Younger's um, um, premiership, they essentially had the rebellion in 1798 and decided the best way to deal with it would be go, to go for full-out union, um, giving 100 or so seats in the House of Commons to, um, to Irishmen. And that would 
that would have worked an awful lot better if it had been tied in with Catholic emancipation, which, of course, the king was absolutely opposed to, partly because of his coronation oath. And when Tom earlier made, um, asked about coronations, I think that's one thing that the government clearly aren't looking into, but probably should, the wording of the coronation oath, um, which is still very uh, sort of ultra-Protestant, as it were. Um, and also the um, whole way in which, um, because of his knowledge that his entire dynasty was only on the throne because they were Protestants, um, he uh, he refused to change his um, his stance on Catholic emancipation, and it and it did mean that it, the union, when it started, uh, it st- it got off on completely the wrong foot, essentially. But he also remembered, of course, those terrible riots which killed five hundred people in in the Gordon riots in seventeen eighty, and uh, and he recognised the power of bigoted uh, Protestantism. He wasn't one himself. He was the first um, king to stay in Catholics' uh, houses and stay with them, and and he made positive remarks about the Jesuits and so on. So you you don't have a... He visited a Catholic chapel, first king to have done so since the Revolution. So, you know, he's not a personal bigot, but ultimately his refusal to allow Catholic emancipation really did set off our union with... Ireland, our legislative union with Ireland on completely the wrong foot. And it never really recovered, did it, is the truth, unfortunately? No, I mean, they, they, you know, it's still in, and, and ultimately in 1922, I mean, of course, it did last 122 years, and it's it's rare for, for that many constitutional um, arrangements to to last so long in, in human affairs, but nonetheless, it was never, it was never terribly happy, was it? Um, can I just ask about one thing which might be of um, kind of relatively... Um, imminent practical application, which is, um, you know, the arrangement for a stand-in for a regency during those periods, albeit short periods, you're, you're saying um, towards the end of the, the reign where George III wasn't um, compus mentis, um, uh, with a 95-year-old queen, whether it's this year, next year or whatever, even if she's fully in charge of her um, mental capacity, um, she's clearly getting less mobile and so on. And um, there is talk about a handover and a regency. Are there any lessons for how that would work? Well, there, it's already happened, hasn't it? You know, she very rarely... It, Prince Charles sees more ambassadors and does does the knightings and the investitures and things like that, you know. To, to all in, intents and purposes, um, we've got a an active um, regency. It's just that there's um, there's nothing in the Queen's makeup, um, psychological makeup, to think that an abdication, which is essentially what you're talking about, uh, would be um, a good thing. In fact, I imagine um, her memories of it when she was 12, her vestigious mem- vestigial memories of it must turn her against the whole concept anyway, 10 years old or wherever, however she was. But I don't think, I don't think that um, we're anywhere near Regency kind of stroke abdication kind of uh, issues today. I really don't. Okay, that is all from us. Thank you both very much for joining us this week and thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. Andrew Roberts's book, George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch, is out with Penguin. Our producer is Sarah Collins. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe and we'll see you next week.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.